0: Uh, Ranked Member Booker, thank you very much for uh, being here and particularly I want to thank Chairman Barrasso because he graciously allowed us to both have this subcommittee hearing and, and for me to be able to chair it. Uh, this is a discussion that's really important to all of us who are here and so many of our colleagues. Information is power today and we see it uh, all over the globe. When it's used improperly, it's used as a weapon. Democracies like ours require a well-informed electorate to function properly but our enemies are increasingly trying to undermine That principle through so-called disinformation campaigns designed to mislead voters and in doing so delegitimize our democratic elections. Uh, Malign actors like Russia systematically exploit social media, radio, television and print to twist facts to suit their needs and distort the truth to an unsuspecting populace. It's not just about elections, we see it today with regard to the coronavirus and misinformation that's being uh, spread. It's uh, An interesting tactic because it's inexpensive and yet can be very effective. Uh, It has a high degree of deniability. Um, It's anonymous almost always and again if left unchecked it it can be devastatingly effective. In 2016 uh, Senator Chris Murphy who's here today and I uh, established this organization within the United States government through legislation. The idea was to have an interagency group that could help lead this global disinformation uh, effort and work with international partners for a unified response. The bipartisan legislation, the Global Engagement Center within the State Department is now law. Um, it's taken a while, frankly, to get it up and going. Uh, we're we're going to hear a lot more about that today, but we're pleased that we're making progress. The mission of the GEC is to, and I quote, lead, synchronize, and coordinate efforts of the federal government encountering foreign state and foreign non-state propaganda and disinformation efforts, end quote. So it's a it's a broad and important mandate, it's the central nexus of our work to create this effective shield against the falsehoods that threaten the integrity of our democracy and other democracies. Uh, we're pleased to have Leah Gabriel here with us as our first witness, she's the Special Coordinator of GEC, uh, she's a former Human Intelligence Operations Officer, a Defense Foreign Liaison Officer, a U.S. Navy Program Director, um, a Navy 18C fighter pilot um, and a national television news correspondent and an anchor. Uh, She's done all that uh, within her short life, Uh, so it's very impressive. She's well experienced in combating disinformation campaigns. We're glad to have her leading in this initiative. We look forward to hearing how she has staffed the center to meet the mission. Uh, We look forward to the assessment of the emerging threats we face and the budgetary requirements moving forward. I think it's critical re- that we resource uh, the GEC to meet this important mission, and therefore I support the F-21 President budget request of $138 million. That's an increase of about $76 million over last year's budget, it's more than a doubling of the current funding. And I think that's important, and again, we'll hear more about why that's so important. Our second panel will have Dr. Alina Palyokova, um, I'm going to try this again. I always call her Alina, so I I don't have to worry about the last name, but Alina Polyakova from the Center for European Policy Analysis and then Dan Blumenthal from the American Enterprise Institute. They'll serve as our expert witnesses as we have a frank and serious discussion about the global weaponization of information and the U.S. government's response. Uh, Dr. uh, Polyakova and Mr. Blumenthal have testified before. Uh, before this and other committees and are highly regarded for their work and we look forward to hearing their insights. Today we'll also aim to examine the threat posed to democracies by the deliberate and intentional state-sponsored spread of inaccurate information to inflame societies. There are numerous examples of this happening again in just the past few years. Here in the United States we have extensive documentation that Russia conducted a coordinated interference campaign in our 2016 elections, something we're working hard to prevent this election cycle elsewhere Ukraine has been the subject of a sustained Russian disinformation campaign in response to its efforts to break free of, free of Moscow's influence since the 2014 Revolution of Dignity we're seeing a rise in these tactics from China both in the Indo-Pacific and in Europe this is truly a global problem again that requires an integrated global response i was recently at the Munich Security Conference with some of my colleagues here and we had a robust discussion about this and about the US European partnership in fighting disinformation today i want to dig deeper into that subject as well. Uh, With regard to the Indo-Pacific region, there has been a strong relationship between the GEC and the Indo-PACOM command that is, I think, a model for others to follow. We look forward to hearing more about how this works and how the PRC manipulates or blocks information that doesn't meet their desired narratives. Lastly, I think it's important that the U.S. continue to be a world leader in efforts to combat this disinformation. Where the United States goes, other countries tend to follow. Through the GEC and other agencies, we've established a close and effective relationship with some of our European counterparts, and our joint efforts are beginning to gain traction elsewhere. The topic of disinformation is now a topic of discussion across the globe, as we saw uh, at the conference in Munich. To continue our leadership on this issue, we've got to have an effective organization within the federal government to coordinate our response. This hearing will address how we can understand the issue better and ultimately make the GEC even more effective. The problems caused by deliberate state-sponsored manipulation of information are going to be here for a long time. They're not leaving us. The tactics are inexpensive, deniable, highly effective, and it's critical we understand the dangers they present and the best way to seize the initiative in this arena. I look forward to hearing from our witnesses in a moment and from the members of the committee. I now turn to ranking member Senator Booker for his opening remarks.
1: Um, uh, Thank you very much, uh, Mr. Chairman. Uh, It's incredible uh, to be able to be sitting here today next to you. Uh, you, uh, frankly, not only helped to get this hearing done, but you and Senator Murphy, uh, your extraordinary leadership in drafting the legislation that authorized the GEC, if I understand it correctly, took it from an executive order at the whims of presidents to really something that was established. And It's uh, incredible that you're here, and I want to thank uh, Senator Murphy for his continued leadership in many ways uh, as a more junior member on this committee, in many ways just being a friend and a mentor. Um, I am disappointed, though. I just want to say uh, this is a very bipartisan hearing. I mean, it's this legislation that the two of you wrote together. Uh, It's something that uh, bonds us all, the concerns and the mission of this organization. Uh, But the State Department refused to provide the committee with the witness it requested, Uh, uh, and that's unacceptable to me. It's not the way we should be doing business. Uh, We all have uh, shared interests and uh, shared values and a shared understanding of the growing Uh, and more sophisticated threats. It's just unacceptable to me. It's not helping us uh, to do the business of the people of this country and protecting us uh, and keeping us safe. Uh, And that brings me to where uh, my thoughts are for the moment, uh, which is in the aftermath of September 11th, uh, the U.S. created the GEC with the goal of reducing the influence and effectiveness of terrorist and violent extremist groups uh, that were seeking to harm Americans. Uh, Today, the scope of the GEC's work is incredible to me. It extends beyond terrorist, violence, extremist groups, and state-sponsored propaganda uh, disinformation. It's really growing to be an incredibly critical uh, uh, mission, uh, giving the the complex uh, challenges from our adversaries. Uh, As we are sitting here in this hearing, there are actors seizing on widespread concern regarding the coronavirus to intentionally spread disinformation at a time when people are worried and vulnerable uh, and willing to believe uh, uh, what they're reading often. And we understand that in uh, the context of this, FDR's words are very profound. We have nothing to fear but fear itself. Well, we have a real threat and then the additional threat threat of fear. Uh, Washington Post has been reporting on this, uh, talking about the use of social media and the conspiracy theories being threaded that put us at danger. The report revealed evidence of uh, coordinated inauthentic activity Uh, which was responsible for pushing these dangerous falsehoods. Uh, One conspiracy theory is seeking to attack people in this country, uh, blame them, in this case, uh, Bill and Melinda Gates. Um, As people here in the US and across the globe uh, are are turning to social media for information about this looming threat, they find these lies, uh, these malicious actors uh, who are trying to really prey upon our vulnerability and and put us more at danger. Um, And so this, intentional desire to muddle the facts uh, to undermine our security and our safety to make us doubt our institutions to make us uh, doubt each other it will weaken the bonds of our of our democracy as well as put people at risk and this brings us to the GEC's work they're at the work at getting the bottom of this misinformation around the coronavirus is exactly why it was created by Congress led by the gentleman on my either side Uh, But I have some questions about why both the GEC and the State Department uh, have so far refused to comment about the report uh, uh, and about the reliable news outlets that are seeking uh, to expose this this disinformation. And so I hope to have that conversation as this goes on. I'm also hoping to get to the bottom of important information that the GEC themselves have have uncovered uh, about uh, those who are spreading the falsehoods for what purposes they seek uh, and what effects it's already having. Uh, Russian interference in the 2016 elections demonstrated the dangers posed by this misinformation. And we now know that the Russians uh, and other countries are trying to get better and better and more sophisticated at what they're doing. This is their playbook, targeting democracies, sowing discord through misinformation, and attempting to weaken relationships between allies. There is no reason for us to believe that they're not going to continue to employ this playbook, to get better at it, to come at the coming elections, and to seize any opportunities, like the coronavirus, uh, to undermine our safety, security, and our very bonds uh, here in the United States of America. While the State Department does not have the authority over the homeland, through the data and analysis the GEC collects on Russian techniques and practices, we know a lot more uh, about what they may do to meddle in this year's election and to meet a lot of the challenges that they present. Um, I want to know how this is being shared with relevant agencies, including the Department of Homeland Security, FBI, and and more. And while the U.S. recently has begun to see these uh, uh, Russian threats more broadly, Russia's Democratic and pro-Western neighbors have have had to contend with Russia's attempts to reverse Democratic gains for years. We also know these Russian efforts are not limited to Europe and the United States. As in Europe, we're seeing this now growing in Africa. Moscow's engagement uh, enables autocrats and fosters corruption, especially in already fragile African countries. We know the Kremlin's activities are designed, in part, to weaken the U.S.'s leadership in that region, but to undermine the very ideals of our democracy and others. Last year, Facebook identified accounts targeting eight African countries, saying, although the people behind these networks attempted to conceal their identities and coordination, Our investigation connected these campaigns to entities associated with a specific Russian oligarch who was described as the architect of Russia's interference in the 2016 election. China, too, has rapidly increased the use of influence tactics uh, in the information space. The near-peer competition is clearly playing out in the misinformation space as well. And so, to me, the GEC's task is considerable, to lead... Interagency efforts to counter propaganda and disinformation from international terrorists, organizations and foreign countries. I look forward to hearing uh, from both panels uh, uh, about how we as Congress can continue uh, to strengthen our work to make sure we are meeting what I believe is a growing threat tactic uh, uh, and techniques being used by our adversaries to undermine this country, as well as critical allies, as well as the stability and strength of free peoples all around the country. Uh, Thank you again for being here, and Mr. Chairman, I turn it back to you.
0: Thank you. Uh, I I appreciate those statements. We look forward to getting into more of those issues as we move forward. And again, our first witness is Ms. Leah Gabriel. Uh, We spoke about her impressive background earlier, but she is the Special Envoy and Coordinator of the Global Engagement Center for the U.S. Department of State. And Ms. Gabriel, all of your written record will be printed in its entirety in the record. We'd ask you that you limit your... Oral remarks this morning to five minutes, and uh, we look forward to to your testimony and then the opportunity to ask some questions. So, Ms. Gabriel,
2: your opening statement. Thank you, Chairman Portman, Ranking Member Booker, and members of the subcommittee. Thank you for inviting me to testify before you today. I'm pleased to be here to talk about the Global Engagement Center's work. This is an important topic with serious implications to U.S. national security, and I appreciate the subcommittee devoting this time to it. The GEC is dedicated to the mission of leading and coordinating the U.S. government's efforts to decisively expose and counter foreign state and non-state disinformation and propaganda. Secretary Pompeo has called upon the GEC to employ a broad suite of tools to stop America's adversaries from weaponizing information and using propaganda to undermine free societies. Since becoming the special envoy of the GEC just over a year ago, my team and I have made significant progress, towards building international partnerships, executing dynamic programs, and deploying robust analytical capabilities globally to address foreign propaganda and disinformation. I've worked to ensure my team has the necessary tools and resources to do the job given to it by Congress. At the State Department's recent Chief of Mission Conference, I spoke with our U.S. ambassadors who represent us around the world. I shared our threat assessments on disinformation and propaganda, and I listened to their perspectives on how developments are playing out on the ground. We at the GEC recognize the crucial role that our missions and our public diplomacy officers play on the front lines of this information battleground. My teams are working with embassies overseas and with the department's regional bureaus daily to execute and to coordinate activities. Today I'll outline how we view the disinformation the Kremlin and the Chinese Communist Party are propagating, what we're doing to counter each and the role that data and analytics play in our work. I'll also describe the GEC's role in coordinating a whole of U.S. government effort to respond to foreign propaganda and disinformation. I'm also available to answer any of your questions about how the GEC counters propaganda from terrorist organizations like ISIS, as well as disinformation from the Iranian regime. Let's start with the Kremlin. The intent, scope, and style of disinformation and propaganda spread by the Kremlin and the Chinese Communist Party are distinct from one another. The Kremlin swamps the media environment with a tsunami of lies. Outside of Russia, the Kremlin seeks to weaken its adversaries by manipulating the information environment in nefarious ways, by polarizing political conversations, and attempting to destroy the public's faith in good governance, independent media, and democratic principles. To counter the Kremlin's disinformation, the GEC is creating strategic partnerships with foreign governments to enable the information sharing and the coordination that allows us to get ahead of the Russian government's information operations. The GEC is also providing support to our missions abroad and our international partners for a wide range of efforts to counter the Kremlin's disinformation. These include supporting civil society groups in Central and Eastern Europe that build resiliency in their local communities. These also include running joint communications campaigns with allies to counter Russian historical revisionism and to empower fact-checkers in Latin America to stem the surge of Russian disinformation in that region. With increased funding, we intend to provide more of this type of support to additional allies and partners globally so that they can increase their own ability to resist these Russian tactics. The investments we have made have also allowed us to expose elements of the Russian government's information operations ecosystem. This exposure inoculates audiences against this threat, and it's critical. Now while Moscow wants to disrupt the current world order, the Chinese Communist Party seeks to shape it to Beijing's advantage. Beijing is pursuing a comprehensive and coordinated influence campaign to advance its interests and to undermine the United States. But when you take a closer look, it's clear that many of the CCP's actions in the economic, security, and human rights space are built on propaganda. The GEC's programs are are focused on puncturing those false narratives. Our efforts to counter CCP propaganda include increasing awareness of the problematic aspects of the Belt and Road Initiative, increasing awareness of the problematic aspects of human rights abuses in Xinjiang and elsewhere in China, as well as Beijing's abuse of open research and academic environments to achieve its military objectives. We also have programs to build global resilience to PRC disinformation through media training and support to investigative journalists and to map PRC influence in the information environment to guide current and future approaches. Beijing also wants to shape third country perspectives of U.S. foreign policy. In order to restrict the space where CCP propaganda can take root The GEC partners with our missions overseas on efforts that provide accurate information about U.S. policies and the contributions of U.S. businesses to the local communities. In all of this, our success depends on leveraging analytical tools as well as networks of credible partners and local voices overseas, capabilities we are refining and expanding each day. My team and I are committed to the mission that Congress has tasked to the GEC. In our modern age, the Russian government, the PRC, and other adversaries have clearly found ways to leverage new technologies to deepen and to accelerate the impact disinformation and propaganda can have. As has always been the case, free nations must unite and work together to defeat this threat. I'm here today to report that we are making progress. We're building up the GEC's capabilities. We're crafting strategies tailored to the specific approaches of our adversaries. And most importantly, we are regaining the initiative. Again, thank you very much for the opportunity to testify here today. I truly appreciate the subcommittee's support for the GEC's mission, and I look forward to answering your questions.
0: Thank you, Ms. Gabriel, and appreciate your uh, opportunity to, to share with us um, in more detail some of the things you addressed in your opening statement. I've got three colleagues here, all of whom have scheduling conflicts, and a couple of Republicans I hope will be able to come back. So what I'm going to do is just take a minute now and then uh, have the opportunity to ask some more questions after they have a chance to ask theirs before they have to leave. And the one I want to talk about is coronavirus and that that's such a hot topic. In fact, in this very room, we had a hearing uh, earlier today, um, a briefing, I guess you would call it, uh, with some of the nation's experts on the issue. Uh, there's been some discussion already in our opening statements about the fact that there is disinformation out there, unfortunately, including groundless conspiracy theories that are being uh, promoted. Um, And there's an analysis I saw that you all believe that there is quote, evidence of inauthentic and coordinated activity concerning mostly these social media posts and tweets. Can you just briefly talk about the work GC has done on this subject already, the spread of disinformation uh, on the coronavirus and the conclusions you come up with regarding the, role of state actors and others in propagating these falsehoods.
2: Absolutely, and thank you for uh, raising this important issue. Um, The coronavirus is an example of where we've seen adversaries take advantage of a health crisis where people are terrified worldwide to try to advance their priorities, um, the GEC has a robust analytics and research capability and we also work with partners so that we can use the highest level of technology and the latest data science tools to be able to assess the information environment. So we've been watching the narratives that are uh, being pushed out, false narratives around coronavirus. Unfortunately, we have been able to assess that accounts tied to Russia, the entire ecosystem of Russian disinformation has been engaged. Uh, in the midst of this world health crisis. One of the best practices in countering propaganda and disinformation is exposing it. So decreasing the vulnerabilities in audiences that are targeted and increasing their resiliency requires exposing examples of disinformation. This is an example where the GEC worked with public diplomacy and public affairs at the State Department so that we could get the word out and we actually engaged with um, a media organization to share some analysis that we had on what we were seeing in terms of coronavirus. We saw the entire ecosystem of Russian disinformation at play, Russian state proxy websites, official state media, as well as swarms of online false personas pushing out false narratives. Exposing it by working with the media has has built awareness around this issue that there's a lot of disinformation and right now I hope that all actors will act in the most responsible manner to support people who are scared around the world in the midst of this crisis.
0: Thank you. Exposing it is obviously critical. Also providing the counter narrative which is the factual narrative and the scientifically based narrative. So we thank you for that
1: Uh, and again we'll have opportunity to talk more about that and other issues. Senator Booker. I'm just gonna defer to uh, Senator Murphy again and express my gratitude for his leadership uh, on this and looking forward to hearing his line of questioning.
3: Uh, Thank you very much, Senator Booker. Thank you to both you and Senator Portman for convening uh, this hearing. Uh, And thank you, uh, Ms. Gabriel, for uh, I think what has been very able leadership, uh, and uh, I uh, congratulate you with a fairly uh, skimpy budget, uh, having extended the reach of the GEC substantially during your time. Um, Listen, we have um, been complaining forever uh, about the fact that we are fighting asymmetric wars all over the world, predominantly with Russia. Uh, That's where you hear that term used the most, but with China as well. um, and, of course, asymmetry is a choice, right? It's not an inevitability. Um, we have made a choice over the years to um, uh, to, to not equip um, our forces and our foreign policy infrastructure overseas with the capacities they need to compete. And the GEC is an attempt to fill what for too long had been a vacuum, a vacuum on our side uh, of the ledger with respect to the ability to fight and combat disinformation. Uh, and yet, you know, the reach of the GEC is frankly meager compared to the need uh, that's out there today. And I'm glad to see an increase in funding being proposed by the president and hopeful that we can get that through. Um, Ms. Gabriel, with respect to funding, um, I think it's important to note that, and you can tell me if I'm wrong, that the president's budget request um, is um, requesting funding uh, within the State Department for the GEC. Um, at the very beginning, we were forced to do a transfer of funds from the DOD to the State Department in order to get the GEC up and running, but that was a, it is a cumbersome process that is unnecessary given the fact that we now all agree on the efficacy of your work. Um, so can you just speak to the importance of having the GEC funded um, through the State Department rather than through transfer funds?
2: Yes, Senator Murphy, and thank you very much for raising this important issue. The GEC is focused on our mission of countering foreign propaganda and disinformation. So what we are requesting and what is reflected in the President's budget request to Congress is an increase to allow us to expand the scope and the scale of our activities to counter foreign propaganda and disinformation and to bring all the different tools to bear and to focus our team on the mission rather on process. Uh, we truly appreciate the work uh, from Congress on uh, finding mechanisms to assist in providing funding for the GEC in the past. Over the past year, we have seen the process of uh, trying to obtain uh, funding from a different agency to be extremely cumbersome. Although we work very closely with the combatant commands and have built very strong relationships with the DOD, we do assess that the best practice and the best process would be direct funding for the GEC. And, at, At the State Department.
3: So uh, your report on uh, coronavirus misinformation has gotten a lot of attention. I'm glad uh, that you have produced it. Um, Tell us a little bit about your ability to be able to communicate with the social media companies um, that Uh, are transiting a lot of this information, whether you have that capacity today, whether that's something that you envision being able to do more robustly and more effectively with um, uh, with additional resources.
2: So I think it's important to understand that right now what we're seeing are these ecosystems where disinformation and propaganda is being pushed out across platforms. The relationships are very important, and we're working to build relationships. We have an LNO from the GEC now in Silicon Valley, and we're doing a lot of outreach with tech companies to understand some of the technologies that are being developed to counter propaganda and disinformation, but also to be able to have those open lines of communications. But I do want to be clear here. The GEC works for the American people. Social media companies uh, are companies. So the GEC is going to be focused on best practices to serve the American people in countering foreign propaganda and disinformation. So sometimes that means sharing information. Uh, Sometimes it means exposure through the media. That relationship is important, but I'm gonna be focused on the best practices um, and not looking at any specific individual accounts, but rather the overarching principle of what's happening and how we can counter it. So uh,
3: I I also have a question, and maybe I'm bleeding into this question about sort of what lanes different parts of the federal government occupy here? And maybe you're starting to give me an answer to this question. There is this important question of identifying sources of propaganda, identifying um, foreign actors that are putting um, propaganda online. There are some uh, platform companies that are more willing to take those those um, uh, those actors off their platform. There are others that are not as discriminating. Um, Are you saying that that isn't primarily your role uh, to identify those sources and have that communication with the platform companies, that there are other elements in the federal government that are better suited to do that?
2: I think the social media companies have a tremendous challenge with um, protecting their consumers in terms of uh, what is happening on their platforms. But the point I'm trying to make is that it's not just about the individual platforms. It's the overall big picture that we're seeing develop and how how adversaries are using the social media landscape to push out false narratives. Um, So we focus on, and I, I think there, there's a misunderstanding out there about how to counter disinformation. There's an understanding that it's just taking down uh, specific, um, uh, specific personas online, or that it's point and counterpoint, and that's not best practices. The GEC has put a lot of focus on working with our partners in the interagency, in the intelligence community, our partners worldwide, uh, working with the academic community to really understand how you do this. And it's about sensitizing audiences. It's getting out in front of the problem what, rather than reacting to it. And, and,
3: also, and also trying to focus on sources rather than specific content, right? Because it's hard to chase one lie after another. You have to actually go after the source uh, and expose the source as illegitimate or untrustworthy. Is that right? That's correct. Um, And then uh, lastly, tell me about the relationship with um, the different state department posts, right? You've got um, embassies all over the world that are, have political officers that are also working on this question of uh, disinformation, that have relationships with local objective journalists who are trying to do the right thing. Um, I, I imagine at current staffing levels, it's hard to be able to have a hand into all the embassies and the places that we care about on the periphery of China and Russia. Is that something that you can do more of with additional resources?
2: There's so much that we can do more of with additional resources. As my team has, has said to me, we'd like to really get the G in the GEC, meaning global. So posts are critical. Working with regional bureaus is critical, and we've been doing a good job of that. Just to give you an understanding of, of sort of how the GEC is broken down, disinformation and propaganda is being used to undermine the U.S. security and our, and our best interests and that of our allies and partners worldwide, every day, all the time. So we have to focus our resources on the adversaries that are having the most effect. And that's the way we've broken it down so far. So we've divided into threat teams, Russia, China, Iran, and we continue to stay focused on the violent extremist organization threat. And then we've also built cross-functional teams. We have a tech engagement team that's out there working with tech companies to identify the best technologies being developed in the space to counter disinformation and propaganda. And what's very critical is we have an analytic and research team that supports all of the teams. This is where we can put a lot of resources to make sure that we're staying up with the latest technology so that we can do those assessments of the information environment and apply those best practices. Our analytics and research team has around 25 data scientists who are experts in things like ad tech, semantic text analysis, natural language processing, social media, and, and traditional media monitoring. They have all the tools. They know how to u- use the tools that are available on the market. They've also written their own algorithms and their own codes so that they can build uh, programs that we can share with our partners and allies. Another thing that we've done is we built the first of its kind. I think that noise may be my mic too far away.
3: No, that's votes.
2: Something different, okay, that's vote. sorry. Okay, Um, so I wanna talk about this information sharing platform that our analytics and research team has developed. It's the first of its kind, uh, where we're sharing these tools and these capabilities to do analytics and research with our partners worldwide not just so that they can see our analysis and use our tools, but also so that they can be force multiplier and they can do their own assessments and be providing and feeding back in. So this large coordination is a big part of what we're doing. Resources will help and we definitely need to take this issue global.
3: Well, uh, I'm grateful to, to do this work with Senator Portman. Thank you for his leadership uh, and thank you for being here at the hearing. Thanks, uh, Senator Portman. Thank you, Senator Murphy.
0: Um, we look forward to continuing this conversation in a minute, but those were uh, really important important points you raised. Senator Merkley.
4: Uh, Thank you very much. Uh, And I wanted to get a better understanding of how much work you're doing in-house and how much work you're contracting out, if you have a way of kind of employee equivalence or funding that goes outside, inside, so forth. Trying to get a picture of, of how you're structured.
2: At the GEC, we have 118 people as of today. That's a 42% increase since we received the expanded mission in FY17. But with this global problem that we're facing, I think it's clear that we have to be a force multiplier, and that's really what we aim to do. So since I've been on board, I've been very focused on building a team with the expertise that we need. That means regional expertise, analytics, and research expertise, uh, people who understand information operations, people who come from an advertising background. So expertise in building the team has been critical. I've been focused on making sure that the team has the resources they need to be able to execute on this. And then we've been very focused on building a strategy. And our strategy really has three main lines of effort. The first one is to lead and execute countering propaganda and disinformation campaigns. So that's bringing into alignment what we're learning from the experts, what we're doing within the interagency, what we coordinate with the NSC from a policy perspective and other policy guidance, and then what we coordinate with our international partners. So really being a force multiplier and taking um, countering propaganda and disinformation campaigns globally. And then the other thing that we've been doing is we've been uh, having the opportunity to put uh, program funding where they can have high-impact solutions. So in building this big picture of essentially what everybody else is doing in this space, coordinating it and bringing it into strategic alignment, we also can see where there's opportunities to have high impact, and that's where we put funding, and that's where we can work with third-party implementers who have unique expertise, ability, and know-how in different parts of the world. But I think to give you a picture, we really see ourselves as a data-driven mission center that should be energizing the network worldwide of our partners and allies that counter propaganda and disinformation.
4: Okay, so my question was pretty simple, which was what proportion of your operation is in-house and what proportion is outside? And you haven't answered that. Can you just give me an answer?
2: There's a difficult, it's difficult to do an apples to apples comparison on that. Again, we have 118 people with a worldwide problem. So we're a force multiplier. I would say that the work that we're doing worldwide and working with our allies and partner is much greater than the sum of its parts.
4: So your in-house spending, is it ballpark, is it 20% of your budget, is it 80% of your budget? Just trying to get a basic understanding here.
2: Well, the in-house spending, uh, I want to get back to you with an exact number, but I would say it's closer to around 75%, maybe 70%. But I have to make sure that you understand, a big portion of this is creating those analytics and research capabilities. We're data-driven. We don't want to be using anecdotal evidence to try to attack this problem. So to recognize, understand, expose, and counter foreign propaganda and disinformation, it starts with data. It starts with having the right experts in-house and having those capabilities to then drive and push out solutions.
4: So if I go back uh, two years ago, uh, it was reported that the in-house team that was working on Russian propaganda didn't have any Russian speakers. I'm guessing that by now that's completely been corrected.
2: Yes, it has.
4: How many Russian speakers do you have now?
2: I wanna make sure I get you a correct number and we'll make sure that we report back to you on that. But I know that my uh, deputy is a Russian speaker.
4: But of your, your, your your team that's working on Russian propaganda, are they all Russian speakers?
2: No, they're not all Russian speakers. And as a former human intelligence operative, I can tell you that oftentimes, when you're working in different environments, uh, you use linguists and others to help you to understand the information okay. environment. Okay.
4: Um, but you're able to get the talent you need. You're pretty satisfied that you have the, yes, okay. Oh, well, you can follow up and give me details on that if, if you would. So in 2019, one of the reasons I was asking about how much is, is done out of house is, once you contract with outside groups, sometimes it's hard to keep control over exactly what they're doing. We had at least one case where I think things got a little out of hand with the Iran disinformation project in which they were putting out essentially disinformation rather than being a counter disinformation, including attacking and smearing some U.S. citizens. And I know you cut off funding to them, or your, your predecessor did. I'm not sure just when you, when you came in. Can you just fill us in a little bit on that and how... How are you developing strategies so we we aren't funding groups that actually uh, are engaged in disinformation rather than countering disinformation?
2: Thank you for raising that important issue. Uh, I was the special envoy and coordinator when that issue arose. And I will tell you that within hours of uh, learning about the fact that one of our uh, implementers had gone outside the scope of their agreement. It was never intended for them to be addressing uh, U.S. domestic audiences. As soon as we found out that they had gone outside the scope of the agreement, I immediately suspended uh, that particular project. And then we conducted an internal review and ultimately decided to end that contract, to end that agreement. Uh, we did have some lessons learned from that. We have uh, teams monitoring social media of our implementers. Um, I've been very focused on implementing um, measures of effectiveness in monitoring and evaluation in all of our programs we have an m e team uh, we follow the latest research as we're approaching these pro- as the- these problems so that we can make sure that we're using respected organizations that are vetted We have a vetting process at the state department um, and we have regular oversight as well as reporting from each of these organizations so we have a very robust effort to uh, To put in place to make sure that any implementers are staying within the scope of work and that they are properly spending taxpayer dollars. That's critical.
4: Um, Thank thank you. I'm down to 30 seconds. I wanted to ask you in regard to the specific efforts of Russia to spread the disinformation on the U.S. regarding the coronavirus that came out of our lab. You mentioned that there was a lot of messages being generated. Uh, How much are they now using people uh, in buildings to tweet, and how much much of those messages are being generated by botnets? What are we seeing in terms of the pattern of the technology they're employing?
2: What we're seeing, as I mentioned before, is an entire ecosystem. So if you look at the spectrum of Russian disinformation, it includes Russian state-funded media, official accounts proxy news sites that spin conspiracy theories under the guise of journalism, and then legions of false social media personas, uh, many of those were not bots. Mm-hmm. But we saw thousands pushing but out false information.
4: Thousands of people or false accounts false, that false were not bots, so they personas. were people generated. Okay, so we're seeing more reliance on on human operations than on botnets in that in this regard?
2: It continues to be a mix.
4: Okay, thank
1: you. Thank you. Um, Senator Booker. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Um, First of all, thank you. I I cannot express to you uh, the kind of patriotic duty you're doing in our country, and as this whole area wasn't even imaginable 10 years ago, uh, I'm very understanding that this is something that we're all continuing to learn. I have friends who founded some of these companies that you're working closely with, and um, a lot of things are moving fast. The challenges are oncoming. They're developing and, and the like, and you're your uh, presence, your leadership, your dedication, your commitment is, is incredible. I, I just want to get to some uh, specific understanding. So um, the report that you have on the coronavirus specifically, you didn't make that public. Is there is there classified data in there? Is that is that what was a concern?
2: We've done a number of reports on coronavirus uh, that are intended uh, to inform our partners and our allies, uh, both inside the interagency as well as the IC, as well as our partners worldwide on what we're seeing around false narratives. Sometimes it makes sense to share those reports and sometimes it doesn't. Again, this goes back to best practices. Uh, I think the reports that that you've uh, been referencing, there are some that have uh, been out in the press. Uh, There was one that, one. Report that allegedly, or an alleged report that was leaked to the media. I haven't seen what it is that they're talking about. Um, but it does talk about um, some of what we've been seeing. It does, uh, the reporting I've seen accurate, accurately depicts what we've been seeing. We did actually share uh, one of our analysis, one of our report analysis with a media organization, specifically around Russian disinformation and the narratives that we've seen. And that was specifically to address our best practices in countering disinformation, which is exposing it.
1: And I I guess that's my point. If we're trying to expose this, wouldn't it make sense for all the reports, unless there's some kind of classified information, trying to protect sources, methods, et cetera, why not get that information out there? Doesn't that help to discredit the activities in and of themselves?
2: I think what's important is exposing and showing enough supportive data or a supportive analysis to expose the problem. But what we don't want to do is we don't want to share our tradecraft with our adversaries.
1: And therefore, and the, and the, you're saying to me that the reports that we're, you and I are talking about that are not public or not intentionally public have tradecraft uh, uh, in them that we want to protect.
2: That's true, and I'm not saying that it's classified tradecraft. I'm saying this is methodologies that we've been developing. We've intentionally made a lot of these reports um, at an unclassified level so that we can share them with our partners and allies, which is important in exposing. But the the zeros and ones of how we're doing the work, that's not important in terms of best practices and countering disinformation and the exposure we're trying to do, and we don't want to give our adversaries the opportunities to get ahead of us.
1: I respect that. Uh, I respect that. And so... Do you see it as part of your mission, though, in releasing information that you are trying to dispel it, undercut it, kneecap, what's going on out there?
2: Best practices are not point-counterpoint. It's rather to decrease vulnerability and increase resilience. So by exposing, that's what we're trying to do. Forgive me for
1: interrupting. So, yeah, I understand. I I get that. But I guess also with this specific challenge of the coronavirus – um, th- there could be that dual purpose, right? best practices helping to empower other folks, but when you're when you 're exposing this it, it diffuses it, the, the strength of the misinformation as well am i correct
2: that 's correct, and that 's exactly why we did it
1: thank you and and to the extent that you 're seeing this, you said here, which is one of my first questions is that specifically the Russians and their net their growingly sophisticated networks are trying to uh, put out disinformation about the coronavirus that puts our country and our people at risk. Is that correct, definitively correct?
2: We saw the entire Russian ecosystem of disinformation pushing out false narratives around coronavirus. That is correct.
1: And you have released that officially in your in the reports that you have released?
2: We have shared the analysis of one of those reports with a media organization who accurately reported on that. Uh, we have um, answered questions that were provided to us uh, through public diplomacy and public affairs. I think it's well known at this point that there are false narratives out there around coronavirus, and that's very helpful for people who are scared right now in the midst of this crisis to understand that they need to go to accurate sources of information, uh, like the World Health Organization and the CDC for for the accurate information on how to protect themselves.
1: Right, and, and, and then in, in with... <sighs> I guess this is a big frustration I have, is that we still have people in positions of authority in our country that are denying the, the growing sophistication of the Russians and their ecosystem, as you call it, which seems to give strength to them if we and ourselves are denying that the Russians are doing this kind of activity. Would, is my concern that that government officials would be denying the, the strength, sophistication, the ecosystem, as you put it, that that the Russians are using to try to undermine, whether it's this or election security, isn't that problematic in itself? If the goal, as you said, is to diffuse this um, by exposing it, to have counter narratives uh, uh, coming from positions of authority, uh, um, denying that the Russians are even doing this kind of activity, doesn't that just, again, more make us more vulnerable and muck up the water, so to speak, with us, our ability to to... Uh, uh, expose and diffuse those very Russian activities.
2: I can only speak to what I've seen and the support I've received, and I've seen full support from this administration to the Global Engagement Center and its efforts to counter foreign propaganda and disinformation reflected by the $138 million budget request to Congress, which I truly hope Congress will support, sir.
1: I appreciate that, and clearly I don't, as a representative of the administration, I I don't expect you to Say specifically. I, I just was saying to talk to about any this administration specifically. Allow me to do that. I have no problem. But I'm just saying to you, as 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 a actor, you it is problematic if if positions of authority are undercutting the very the very point that you've made, which is that this is a threat to the United States that the Russians are are growing in sophistication. They have established an ecosystem. That in itself, in an academic way, is a simple yes or no question. It's very problematic, yes or no, if we as a country are speaking with multiple voices, some saying that this is not a problem, that they're not doing this, and others are. It only gives strength to the, the Russians themselves. Is that correct?
2: The Kremlin's goal is to separate and divide us. It's classic subversion. So the more we can all work together together, bipartisan, nonpartisan, working together on countering propaganda and disinformation, the better we will be as a country.
1: Hallelujah, amen. That is exactly what their tactic is, which is to try to divide us, to try to undermine uh, our trust of our agencies, trust of our intelligence apparatus uh, to directly approach this. And it's very frustrating to me uh, when you see folks that should be working in tandem publicly, giving the same message, undermining uh, this this. The truth and the simple truth that you are putting forward there, and I appreciate that response. And I will yield uh, to my, uh, my 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 chairman here, who has a much better haircut than me.
0: Uh, well, first of all, it was it was dark hair before
1: I got involved in this issue, disinformation. Um, <laughs> well, Mr. Chairman, I used to have a big afro as I was saying, <laughs> saying earlier behind there too, so i pulled all mine out.
0: Yeah. Uh, listen, I'm, I'm very encouraged with what I hear today, and, and I want to thank you for, for coming. I'm going to follow up on a few issues, but I think, um, you know, Senator Booker is correct that the more information we can get out there, the better um, in the context of coronavirus as to what some of the false narratives are, the exposures, part of it, the best practices you talked about. Um, and by the way, we've done it this morning, and what you said this morning is pretty powerful. Uh, What you haven't done is provide any specific examples. There was uh, a mention earlier of Bill Gates. I'm not sure people understand what that meant, but but I'll give you a chance, if you would, to just play out maybe one or two of these false narratives that, that have been out there with regard to coronavirus so people can be aware of them.
2: I want to be careful with my words here because repeating false narratives actually reinforces them. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've learned from social science that oftentimes people believe the first version of a story that they hear, and then it's an uphill battle to undo that. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you would like for me to identify certain um, disinformation narratives, I can. I'd prefer not to.
0: Okay. Well, let me do it since it was mentioned earlier, which is that somehow you know Bill Gates and his and some labs started the coronavirus, which is an absolute falsehood, and there's absolutely no basis for it. Uh, Since it was mentioned earlier, I wanted to clarify that. Um, But that's an example of the kind of thing that, for the person watching today who is not an expert on what disinformation and propaganda means, that's an example of something that's meant to try to divide us. You mentioned polarization earlier, we're already a polarized country in so many respects to further polarize us. And to create, as you said earlier, and, and my colleagues have said, distrust in our institutions, particular institutions of government here in a democracy like ours, So, uh, where that's so important. So I, I think your role is incredibly important. You know, We've talked a lot about the budget, and I just want to put a finer point on that, if I could. My understanding is that you requested $76 million uh, and were appropriated $60 million for this fiscal year and now you're asking for $138 million, uh, which is again more than a doubling of what you're currently receiving. I, you know, Fiscal discipline is important, but when you look at the, the mission and the importance of this mission, and the fact that increasingly, as a former uh, military officer yourself, uh, increasingly our, our battle is not kinetic. It's, it's, as some say, hybrid, but specifically it's this battling of disinformation So my hope is that we can support the mission more strongly and be sure it's spent wisely. And I think Senator Merkley's question to you is an important one, to be sure that we don't have uh, contractors who are misrepresenting what you want to do. And I'm glad that you acted quickly with regard to the Iranian uh, issue that had been in the media. Uh, But if you could talk just a little more about um, our new approach here. The, The DOD... Transfer to you, we thought was necessary to, find, frankly, get you up and going and to kickstart. I agree with uh, what you have said today and what was implied, at least, uh, by what Senator Murphy said that that was not a successful endeavor. It took, frankly, too much of your time and other people's time to try to work through the bureaucracy and the red tape, despite the fact that the. Uh, the Secretaries of, of Defense were always supportive when they talked to me, at least, and, and, and they were, I believe, but it took a while for the bureaucracy to, to, to respond to that, and also that your Secretary of uh, State right now, Secretary Pompeo, and his previous deputy, uh, Secretary, uh, Deputy Secretary Sullivan and current deputies, Deputy Secretary Began, are very supportive. And I think that's why you see these bigger numbers being requested. So we don't want to go back to the, the DOD focus. What we do want to do is be sure that we can justify the, uh, the the budget increase that you're asking for. So, What would you say is the best way to do that? Um, you have a mix of foreign service officers, civil servants, contractors. Uh, some folks who understand are interagency detailees. Um, you've got to have technical experts, as you talked about, who can do these algorithms and these are highly paid individuals because you gotta get them from the private sector. I'm sure you can't compete directly on a monetary basis, but they're probably happy to serve their country in this respect. But how would you, what would you think is the main reason that we need to more than double the budget?
2: There's a very simple answer and it's because we need more of everything to be able to execute this mission on a global scale. So I I think you're wanting some specific examples of initiatives and I'll go further. I think that we need to be focused on the continent of Africa, and we should be shifting some focus there. We're seeing uh, Russian disinformation campaigns on the continent. We're also seeing uh, Chinese malign influence there. We have programs ready to go that could build capacity that work with uh, local um, leaders uh, across the board. Uh, We just don't have the resources to do that right now. We've got to continue to stay ahead in terms of the capabilities out in the tech industry. some examples are uh, of initiatives that we have or we plan and implement coordinated campaigns. That takes sending people to travel, building partnerships with other countries. It sometimes means bringing uh, funding to the table and being able to lead on those initiatives. Uh, we're developing a repeatable trade craft that we can share. I mentioned this platform, this online information sharing platform that we are sharing with partners and allies worldwide. That's critical. We're conducting analysis to understand and craft solutions to be data-driven in this approach. That takes money. Uh, We're analyzing the attempts of adversaries. Again, those tech solutions take money. And then here's another place that it's really important, supporting those non-US government efforts on the ground who have unique expertise in their regions to understand the problem and to push back with effective solutions. It all takes money. We've got to put the G back in the GEC and make it global. Mm
0: Well, I think that's, that's very helpful to have that um, list of specific priorities and initiatives uh, that do require uh, resources. The one I will add that you mentioned earlier uh, is to be proactive. And I think this is something that, um, you you said, is consistent with best practices. It's also going to require some resources, and not always U.S. government resources, as you've indicated, including you know, enlisting our allies, uh, partners. Uh, we talked about journalists earlier and uh, objective professional journalists to counter. So I think getting ahead of the curve is more important than ever. Thank you for mentioning Africa. I couldn't agree with you more. Uh, You know, a trade agreement with Kenya, uh, keeping some troops there to help uh, the the, the French and others in West Africa. This issue, I mean, I think there's a lot we can do right now with Africa to counter what is uh, clearly a a target for uh, other actors, including Russia and China. Um, My final question has to do with keeping us up to speed. There was a briefing recently that was conducted with congressional staff and this hearing itself is really um, an opportunity for you to brief us. We'd like to do more of that and I think honestly if we'd done this a couple years ago it would have been difficult because you didn't have your feet under you at that point. You didn't have the resources, you didn't have the personnel um, and it takes a little while to get the organization up and going. You're now up and going uh, obviously with some interest in growing further. But would you commit today to continuing to send your staff up here on a more regular basis to consult with and brief interested staff and members and and share the analysis of what you're doing?
2: Absolutely, Senator. I can tell you that my staff tremendously enjoyed the opportunity recently to come up and brief. We're very proud of the work we're doing, and I think it's a wonderful opportunity to interact and also to highlight the great leadership and the great thinking that's coming from my team at the Global Engagement Center.
1: Excellent. Senator Booker, any other questions? Yeah, I just want to dig into Africa for a second. Um, uh, just the, just your general strategic approach, and by the way, I think that that was a great uh, testimony to the need for more resources. And from what I've been reading, the expansive attempts with Chinese and Russians uh, on that continent uh, to engage in, I think the political science term is Mishigas uh, there. Um, so can you just give a little bit more description of your strategic approach to that problem?
2: I can tell you that this is a perfect example of where we really need more resources. Um, Right now we're launching a program that networks international China experts with local African voices to exchange insights and better understanding of CCP influence operations in Africa. We're also uh, really emphasizing technology. So we actually are sending a team to Kenya in a couple of months for a, what we call a tech challenge. It's where we're convening tech experts, go, local government experts, NGOs as well as members of our team to look at and assess different technologies that are being developed on the continent um, that counter propaganda and disinformation. So it not only serves to provide an opportunity to give a little bit of funding to some of those companies that are trying to make their technologies work and that, that could be effective in this space, but even more importantly, it's important in Uh, building resiliency and decreasing vulnerability in the populations by exposing them and bringing them together as a community of interest on this challenge. But there's so much more that we could be doing. And so that's why I think it's really important that we have the funding um, and the direct funding that we're requesting.
1: And besides China, Russia, are there other sort of powers that are at work there?
2: Well, of course, we can never take our eye off of violent extremist organizations and the terrorist threat. Uh, one of the ways that the GEC has really been executing on its mission is in the CT space. So I am a co-lead on the communications working group of the Global Coalition to Defeat ISIS and my team has built a resiliency campaign to counter ISIS ideology in the core that we have worked through the interagency has been supported by the NSC, and we've now taken it to the global coalition uh, working with SECI uh, to sensitize the 82 members of the global coalition on this campaign to bring us all into strategic alignment. This campaign would start in the core, but then it can also be applied to places in Africa where we're seeing the CT threat become more hot. So I think we have to continue to keep our eye on the ball. There's a number of threats there. Uh, China and Russia, of course, are at the top, and as well as the uh, violent extremist organization threat.
1: And the last just thing real quickly, um, I, the power of diversity. I've seen this uh, here in the Senate. How are you doing? I've, uh, Senator Menendez, Senator and I've been talking a lot about diversity in general at the State Department. But I'd love to see some numbers on, as you build up your team about gender and race diversity in your department. And I, I, frankly, I just know from watching folks trying to deal with the misinformation on social media that might be targeting certain groups, uh, uh, that having diverse staff with lived experiences can often pick up and notice things that uh, others can't.
2: I agree with you that diversity is very important. Bringing a number of different ideas, expertise, backgrounds to this is critical. I talked about uh, the, the different levels of expertise that we have, and I know I've made the GEC more diverse as its leader.
1: Great. Well, I would love to, if you can, help me uh, get just a picture of where you are. You're probably not prepared to do that right now on, uh, on race, gender diversity within your agency as well as religious diversity uh, as well.
2: We would, we would be happy to share that information with you.
1: Thank you very much.
0: Again, I really appreciate your being here today, and it was reassuring to me. Um, One of the uh, challenges that I think is apparent to all of us from hearing you today is you have a very broad mandate, and and the mission is critical. Uh, The resources are limited, and thus having performance measures and understanding what the mission is is important. I'm not going to ask you today to give us your specific uh, measures of effectiveness, but that's something I'd like to follow up on and just be helpful uh, to you, including if we need to do anything on the legislative side in terms of reauthorization of GEC is, you know, how can we really focus and target on on what is essential given uh,
1: given the, the broad mandate. So thank you much and we will stay in touch. And I just want to echo and uh, just say thank you again. You're literally trying to do a startup operation in a sense, uh, uh, learn to build a plane and fly it at the same time. So I'm just grateful for your commitment to country and the patriotism you've shown throughout your entire career. Thank you very much for being here with us today.
2: Thank you very much. I'm so proud of my team and the work they're doing and we truly thank you for this opportunity.
0: Thank you, Ms. Gabriel. Uh, we'll go ahead with our second panel now. We have uh, two experts, as I say, who are going to join us um, and I will let them come up to the to the front. Great. First we have Mr. Daniel Blumenthal, uh, Mr. Blumenthal is Director of Asian Studies and a resident fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. As I said, he's testified before Congress before on this topic, and we're impressed with his testimony. Um, And then Dr. Alina Polyakova. Uh, Dr. Dr. Polyakova is President and CEO of the Center for European Policy Analysis. Again, she is a true expert in this area. I had the opportunity to see her in action uh, at the Munich Security Conference, talking to some of our international partners and NGOs, Uh, with her today uh, is her mother, Irina. So I want to recognize you as well. I I know you must be very proud. Uh, Senator Booker is going to join us in a second. Uh, He has seen the testimony, so I'm going to ask you all to go ahead. Your written testimony will be printed in the record in its entirety, so I ask you to keep your oral testimony under five minutes and then we'll have a chance for some give and take. And uh, I will ask Dr. or Mr. Blumenthal if you would go first
5: yes absolutely thank you Senator Portman and Senator Booker when he comes back for uh, holding this very important hearing as you've as you've heard the uh, disinformation censorship and propaganda threat is uh, one of the greatest challenges we face I think when you're talking about China and the Chinese Communist Party you have to put it under the rubric of China's committing uh, and engaged in political warfare against us, and information, disinformation, sen- and censorship are one uh, key pillar of that political warfare. They've been doing so for many, many years, and we've just started to, uh, to engage that fight. Uh, political warfare meaning uh, trying to undermine our, um, our position in the world, our, our alliances, our own uh, democratic system – uh, through all means other than than actual military uh, military warfare uh, as I outlined in my written testimony, there are an unbelievable number of organizations in China that are involved in propaganda censorship harassment of media, Western and uh, internal uh, at least ten that I mentioned um, and and even more than that that's all to say that it's a feature of the Chinese Communist Party system. It's not a bug. Uh, the system is built on lies and is afraid of the truth. So uh, the the truth, even when it comes to talking about the coronavirus, part of the reason I think that we're facing a greater virus is because there was a cover-up in China for uh, a matter of almost two months. And as we now know, people who try to tell the truth in China, doctors, and journalists and so on were punished, detained, uh, and arrested. Uh, China goes after these uh, these people because it, the Chinese Communist Party cannot live with the exposure of any kind of mismanagement, or uh, corruption, or injustice. Um, but the the entire panoply of, of Chinese activities in the in the censorship space is is just humongous. So uh, they go after. Western media, as we've seen recently, they kicked out Wall Street Journal uh, uh, journalists who were, because of an op-ed that they didn't like that was on the Wall Street Journal opinion page. They've recently arrested the Hong Kong tycoon and freedom fighter Jimmy Lai because of op-ed he wrote in the Wall Street Journal recently. Uh, I, I guess if you want to stay in China, don't write an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal is, is one lesson. Um, so that's on the media. Uh, in my testimony, I'd say... China has an innovative strategy because of the lure of the market to shut down the free speech of Westerners. So if you look at the case this year of the National Basketball Association, if you look at the case of Hollywood, there are at least six more organizations in China that censor content coming from Hollywood. And the themes are very clear. Americans probably know very well that they've never seen a Chinese villain in a Hollywood movie. Uh, the, the themes are always the U.S. is decadent and cowardly and, and, and does all wrong in places like Africa and so forth, and the Chinese are brave and ascendant and so forth. There are, again, probably 16 organizations that go through the content of movies in China before they're allowed to be shown. Um, so the, the free speech rights, they're trying to block access to the market, Using um, you know, and, and shut down people's ability even to say things like "We support the Hong Kong, uh, the Hong Kong protests." Uh, as I say in my written testimony, Taiwan has been ground zero in terms of elect- election, attempted election interference. Um, but Taiwan actually fought back and 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 uh, gives us good lessons. Uh, it fought back in working with social media in sending out uh, MEMS uh, right away humorous memes to combat the kind of disinformation they, they were putting out. And, of course, the Taiwanese people went to the polls and resoundingly voted for the party that China did not want to elect. So a lot of lessons to be learned there. In terms of what we should do about all this, I think we got at some of it. But I would, I would add that we need to be more on offense So uh, we obviously need to continue doing what we're doing and treating uh, Chinese media personas as foreign agents, because that's what they are. are, There's no free media. They are foreign agents of the Chinese Communist Party. We need to keep kicking them out and putting caps on them and making them register as foreign agents. But we, we could do a lot more offensively in terms of going into China with Mandarin speakers, telling our story, telling the story of successful places that are that are like Taiwan, that are Chinese-language-speaking and culture, that are democratic, uh, putting China more on defense, uh, because the people of China are, uh, from what we know, extremely fed up with, with the rule of the Chinese Communist Party. We need to engage in political warfare uh, in a much more robust fashion. I'd love to see us go back to some kind of organization that the GC could lead, like the USIA – that we had in the Cold War, that actually creates a cadre of information warriors whose entire job it is, their entire network, uh, the entire career path is in, in this space in engaging the fight against China and, of course, Russia and other places and and see their role and their job and their career paths developing into information war, warriors, information operators, taking it out of the realm of the military and putting it uh, at the State Department.
0: Thank you, Mr. Bloom. I look forward to following up on all of that. Uh, Dr. Polikova.
6: Thank you, Senator Portman, Senator Booker, uh, for hosting this important hearing. I particularly wanted to thank you, Senator Portman, and uh, Senator Murphy, who uh, who couldn't stay for the majority of the hearing, uh, for your bipartisan leadership work on this specific issue. Um, I think without your efforts in uh, expanding the role of GEC, we would not be here today, uh, so thank you for that. It's a true honor and privilege to be able to address you here today. Uh, Before I begin on the substantive issues, I I want to acknowledge that even though I'm the president and CEO of the Center for European Policy Analysis, which is a nonprofit, nonpartisan, independent foreign policy think tank uh, here in Washington, my views are my own and do not represent those of the organization which takes no institutional position. President Vladimir Putin's Russia seeks to weaken Western governments and transatlantic institutions discredit democratic and liberal values and create a post-truth world. But first and foremost, Russian disinformation aims to undermine U.S. leadership across the world. You only have to watch uh, a few minutes of Russian-language state-sponsored media at home in Russia to understand the level of animosity that uh, the Kremlin has for the United States and very much sees itself locked in a battle for world dominance with the United States. I want to make it clear that these kinds of campaigns, as we have heard in our discussions of coronavirus, are not limited to elections. In fact, any disruptive world event, such as a virus spread that we're experiencing today, is an ample opportunity and fertile ground for disruption and for spreading these kinds of disinformation influence operations. The spread of disinformation is just one part of a broader political warfare toolkit in Russia's arsenal just as my colleague uh, Mr. Blumenthal mentioned on, on China. I think we see a lot of similarity here in how disinformation fits into this broader foreign policy objective of Russia and China. Of course, it's not new. I've been working on Russian disinformation uh, long before it became the issue du jour. Uh, Likewise, Ukraine, Georgia, the Baltic states have been the testing ground and the test labs for Russian disinformation campaigns for quite some time. And as a result, in some ways, they're far more resilient than us. Uh, Unfortunately, the United States and Western Europe woke up late to the challenge. But I think the good news of the wake-up call we had in 2016 is that we've now moved from admiring the problem to entering a new trial and error stage where we are trying new efforts, including policies, social media activities, and research uh, to counter and build resilience to this threat. I want to highlight uh, three uh, insights that have emerged over the last few years. Uh, One is that there is no silver bullet for addressing this problem. A whole-of-society, not just a whole-of-government approach, is badly needed. Second, as we, meaning democratic governments, tech companies, and civil society have responded since 2016, their tactics have evolved. My concern is that we're not keeping up with the evolution of the adversarial threat. In my written testimony, I detail that um, quite um, uh, at length, but just to mention three ways in which the Russian information operations have evolved. One, the Russian information operations have gone global, not only in terms of its scope, but in terms of how other countries are copying this playbook. The Russian playbook is global. The Russian information threat has gone global and further afield to Africa and also South America. The Russian influence operations are a full-spectrum ecosystem approach. They operate across multiple platforms. Uh, they operate a- across multiple media Uh, platforms, not just social media platforms, and in direct concert and focus with their other tools of political warfare, including paramilitary groups, which you saw in Africa very recently. Lastly, Russia is engaged in information warfare by proxy. This is important because increasingly they're using cutouts, local groups and individuals, and local servers to mask their origins. This means that exposure, while incredibly important, is quickly becoming difficult if not impossible. And what we de facto see today is that the line between authentic domestic voices which are protected in most democracies by free speech rights and certainly by the First Amendment here and inauthentic behavior, foreign disinformation we've been talking about here, that line has essentially disappeared. Lastly, to get ahead of this threat instead of reacting to disparate attacks in a -a whack-a-mole fashion, We have to invest in building long-term societal resistance at the same time as getting on the offensive to deter future disinformation operations of this nature. Our response must be calibrated calibrated to meet these future challenges as Russia and other state actors will continue to use multifaceted influence operations to undermine U.S. credibility and global leadership. Uh, I can go into quite a few details in terms of recommendations, uh, but in the interest of time, I'll stop here.
0: Great. Thank you very much. You, you've, you've given us uh, lots to chew on here because there, there's so much, and we're not going to have time today to go into every detail, but again, we appreciate your constant help uh, on the legislation specifically. Uh, both of you were helpful in developing it, and we appreciate the continued briefings, and, and as you say, this is an evolving issue. and As it evolves, we have to be nimble and be able to, to change our strategies. Let's talk about money for a second, because we were debating earlier, you know, what should the budget be? Is it $60 million or is it $130 million? Can you put that in some context for us? Uh, Mr. Blumenthal, you talked about uh, Chinese state media. Um, Dr. Uh, Polyakova you talked in the past about um, the amount that Russia is spending, not just on state-owned media, but even on media here within the United States and even within the District of Columbia. Um, can you give us some some sense of what that would be uh, and, and and as compared to the 60 to 130 million dollars we're talking about?
6: I would be happy to start on the Russia question. Mm-hmm. Uh, one, um, it's, it's not such a straightforward uh, question to answer because of course we don't know how much they're spending in the covert operations mm-hmm. and most of what they're doing in the digital domain is covert. Is these false personas, is the bot networks, is the obfuscation of the origins of the attack. So what we know and these are broad estimates because the Russians do not uh, do not publish this budgetary information as we do. Um, is the la- latest estimate of how much Russia spends on RT, which is a global uh, foreign language, meaning uh, English and other languages, network, uh, is around 300 million. But that number is several years old, and we have no updates since then. That doesn't include a whole swath of other uh, overt government uh, media outlets, Sputnik being one of them, Taz and many many others. And so some estimates put that number well over a billion, but again, this is an estimate. Uh, we know that on their local Russian-language media, uh, the Russians spend at least $1.3 billion, uh, in U.S. dollars. So on the whole, it's very difficult to judge uh, covert and overt ops, but most experts say it's uh, upwards of, you know, 2 to $3 billion a year.
0: Well, that's helpful. And I've heard the $1.3 billion number just for state-run media alone. And the two to three billion, it seems to me, is um, you know a conservative estimate. Given as you say, so much activity is is covert. Uh, but again, let's compare that to what we're talking about in terms of sixty to one hundred thirty million. Uh, Mr. Blumenthal, uh, thoughts about that?
5: Yeah, Chinese numbers are are so opaque, and and um, <clears throat> you just can't can't trust a lot of the numbers. We do know that. Um, in, in the unclassified realm that China now spends more on what they call internal security than on on the people's liberation army's external missions which you know they spend at least 130 billion dollars on external missions so internal security is in the billions if not over 100 billion now how much of that goes to censorship propaganda disinformation is even tougher and to, tougher to know i would I could just name some organizations that, that... So to get a movie into China, to get movie content from Hollywood into China, you have to go through not just the normal organizations that that... Uh, look at film, like the State Administration of Radio and Television and the Ministry of Information, uh, uh, the State Council Information Office, you also now have to go through the State Ethnic Affairs Commission, you have to go through the Ministry of Public Security, the State Bureau of Religious Affairs, the Ministry of Education, the Ministry of Justice, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, and other bureaucratic entities. So I would say that uh, we're looking at billions and billions of dollars spent on censoring content uh, and then within for the Chinese people themselves to absorb and for uh, the world to absorb. Yeah. And then um, money spent on detaining journalists, that's police and internal security, uh, money spent on kicking out journalists. And then I think what could be very helpful, uh, perhaps even for Congress to do, is, is get the intelligence community to map out the actual funding of, quote-unquote, state media. So who's behind... So Tencent, for example, which we consider... Um, uh publicly traded tech company uh, funds a, uh, funds a lot of the state media which are actually um which are actually agents of the government here in the united states and in europe and in other places uh pushing the party line so the, the money is gigantic and then of course there's there's how do you calculate the money of denying access to certain companies if they don't tow the party line in china
0: well again it's staggering and it uh, what we're doing pales in comparison, um, and our effort, again, is about exposing and about providing an accurate narrative. Uh, it's it's not about disinformation, it's about information. Um, but I think that was helpful, to put that in some context. On Ukraine in particular, uh, Dr. Plachikova, you and I have talked a lot about Ukraine, and you're an uh, expert on much of what has happened there. I think it might be interesting uh, to talk a little about the focused disinformation efforts uh, that continue. We talked about, since the Revolution of Dignity uh, in 2014, that Russia has been very active. I'm the co-chair of the Ukraine Caucus, and um, along with Senator Murphy and and others, we've been involved in these Ukraine issues. President Zelensky's got a lot in his hands right now, and one thing is this disinformation. Can you talk specifically about what the Russians are doing in Ukraine to try to sow confusion about the status of Crimea, uh, about the Donbass, about the U.S. role there, um, and what we can do to help Ukraine in in this um, disinformation battle?
6: Thank you for that question, uh, Senator. As I mentioned earlier, Ukraine continues to be uh, victim number one and target number one uh, for Russian disinformation and political warfare efforts. And it doesn't just stop with disinformation. Ukraine has also been the primary target of some of the most damaging cyber attacks uh, we've seen in history um, in recent years. And I think what we've learned in this country is that what happens in Ukraine doesn't stay in Ukraine. All of these tactics eventually come to us and they come to our other allies um, in Western Europe as well and the NATO alliance. Uh, What we've seen in the last few years is that the uh, kind of proxy information warfare I mentioned was first tested in Ukraine. Uh, the first instance of that that we learned about in open source uh, was around the Ukrainian parliamentary elections last year in 2019, uh, where the Ukrainian intelligence agencies uh, arrested an individual who confessed to being a Russian intelligence officer uh, who was sent to Ukraine. Uh, to try to convince domestic Ukrainians to sell or rent out their Facebook accounts, which they would then use as zombie accounts to propagate all kinds of political disinformation and post different kinds of ads. And then we saw them deploy that scale in Africa in the fall. So you see a very short timeline from the tests you see in Ukraine in May. Then in October, we learned that they were carrying out this kind of proxy warfare at a large scale across, I believe, uh, almost a dozen African countries that Facebook identified. So I think we need to follow these kinds of patterns. Most recently, in the coronavirus case, we've been discussing the Russian disinformation um, in, in this country, which the DGC, as we heard earlier, worked together with media to expose. In Ukraine, uh, we know the Russian language uh, media has been trying to uh, soak chaos and uh, propagate uh, kinds of attacks on Asian minorities. Um, in Ukraine um, that then there have been uh, a few instances of attacks in some Ukrainian towns on people of East Asian origin. And this kind of narrative uh, has been propagated. Uh, The other narrative that we see the Russian disinformation machine, this is overt and covert uh, operatives pushing out, is that coronavirus was invented by the CIA not just by uh, uh, Melinda and Bill Gates. And again, this is a pattern that we also saw back in the Soviet era and that we continue to see today. And first and foremost, that happens um, on Ukraine and Ukrainian soil. Great.
1: Thank you much. I'll have a second round in a minute. Senator Booker. Thank you so much. Uh, So just I want to jump in, if you guys can kick the tires a little bit of the GEC. Um, You know, there's a whole bunch of stove piping going on. I think you've got agencies, DOD, DHS, FBI, other intel agencies trying to deal with the problem of disinformation. And there seems to be very centralized highly funded, highly resourced state actors that we're going up against in this new war. They're not matching us tank for tank, aircraft carrier for aircraft carrier. This seems to be one of their main ways to try to undermine Western democracies. And so um, just tell me, as an outsider, do you believe the structure that we have set up here and that the GEC, is this the most effective way for us to counter this massive state-sponsored undermining of Western democracies, our country, at a time where I've never seen in my lifetime the suspicion that Americans have now for institutions, uh, uh, how well uh, lies uh, and uh, conspiracy theories seem to take root in our, in our culture. This to me is weakening the bonds between us, our ability to come together. And meanwhile, China has built 18,000 miles of high-speed rail and we, the busiest rail corridor in America. North America, from Boston to Washington, D.C., runs half an hour slower because we can't get together anymore, even as a society, uh, to work together and meet our common uh, common threat. So I just want you to, from outsiders, tell us, is this the best way to match the threat that we see growing in influence and strength uh, from our foreign adversaries? You know, I, I,
5: I guess I've been at this for a while. I, I think we, sh- we should never have gotten rid of the USIA as an independent agency. You know, which which wasn't seated in in, in any one department could uh, could coordinate with some real power across the CIA and across DOD, and and not only stop active measures that we used to call them from the Soviet Union, but take active measures inside uh, the Soviet bloc. Um, so the short answer to your question is is no. Uh, we are where we are, and I think if the GEC is is properly funded, and uh, doesn't have to fight with Special Forces Command and others about who has the authority. They should be in the lead. I mean, Special Forces Command is a war fighting command, uh, particularly on the on the China issue, which is um, a strategic national level issue. The kind of things that I'm talking about is is kicking out of U.S. media, trying to control the content of, of what we say, trying to stop our free speech rights, going after our, our allies, going after um, uh, countries we want to win over in Africa. So, you know, it, it should not be a military lead by, by uh, any stretch of the imagination. I think if they're given the proper authorities and can actually coordinate interagency action and, and have the power and authority to do so, have enough Chine, Chinese language um, uh, linguists who know the culture well and not only can and know the information environment in China well and not only can 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 identify the disinformation and identify these so-called media people here in the United States and 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 kick them out under the authorities they have but can actually go into China and tell our story or tell the truth um, you know I, I think
1: you know we'll meet we'll, we'll it'll be better than what we've had over the last few years right and i and i would say that the the challenge i have with what you're saying is I understand that I understand that the China propaganda machine—they're uh, affecting our companies, are busy to do business, undermining fair play in the economy, so forth. But that's a little different to me, and maybe I'm wrong. Than China's efforts to undermine our democracy, their offensive efforts. And so, um, can you just help me understand that distinction? And um, um, uh, and, and and because I'm, I get I get confused when you start yeah. talking about you know uh, Disney who doesn't. I've actually talked to people in those industries about how if you want to have a blockbuster global film, you no longer have a Chinese villain. But that's very different than the Chinese insinuating fear around the coronavirus here or interfering within our elections so that there's more chaos created.
5: Well, let let me connect the two because I I believe that once you start affecting the way Hollywood uh, or the National Basketball Association uh, let's say Hollywood does its content; it feeds back into the United States, and without noticing it, the American people are all of a sudden getting movies that are like Top Gun this summer that are affected uh, by what the Chinese think, and not by what we think. They made people take off their Taiwanese and Japanese flags. But I understand your point. That no, does but
1: I, actually, but that's a, that's, a, that's a fair point.
5: Yeah, yeah, and 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 getting NBA stars to kowtow on the Hong Kong issue. That's a, that's different than Russia. That's affecting trying to affect our free speech rights here in the United States. But in, in in terms of the specifics that you're talking about, so the number one, two, and three ways they do it, which is different than Russia, um, is is through uh, you know we've we've tolerated Xinhua and the Global Times and the Confucius Institutes. And and the reason that I'm conflating them all is because they basically all work for the same organizations. And that's to be here posing as news reporters, but really you pick up your newspaper, the Washington Post, you get the China Daily out of it, and it's really just propagating the Chinese line about their ideological worldview, which by definition undermines our own worldview. It's not authoritarian worldview. It's a, it's a deceitful worldview and uh, it it has just has no business being credentialed as media here in the United States.
1: Please, please.
6: uh. I'd say the big difference between Russia and China is resources. The Chinese in no doubt have a far greater ability and capability to not just play at the margins, especially in digital domain, which is relatively cheap, it's very cheap to build a bot army, it's very cheap to have a troll that controls 50 accounts or so, et cetera. Uh, what well, the Chinese have been doing in other parts of the world, and you know, Dan, please uh, correct me if, I, if I'm mistaken there, is actually uh, co-opting local media organizations that are then putting out information in local languages that is uh, a positive take on China in general. And that insidious process is a long term strategy, whereas the Russians are playing very much a short or medium term strategy. I completely agree with my colleague that we completely dismantled our ability to message and to reach vulnerable populations and frontline states. Uh, we still have VOA and RFERL, of course, uh, but these uh, entities are set up to fight 20th century information wars we are not in the 20th century anymore. So we may want to consider something like a USIA, but the USIA has to be a 21st century digital USIA because the place we're falling behind is in that digital space. Uh, we don't have clear coordination, as we heard earlier, between the tech companies. And at the end of the day, it's not just about content, as you said earlier, Senator. It's about the distribution system that enables the amplification and magnification of that content and the precise micro-targeted delivery of that content to specific vulnerable situations. That is the beast we have to fight and so at the, the end of the so day. So the
1: GEC, just to finish before I pass it back to the Chairman, The GC is not your ideal way of, it's important, they're doing important tasks, but given the looming threat, uh, that's not your idea. They're not fully equipped to deal with the modern crisis we're facing, both near term and far.
6: It is a good start, but we need to do so much more. I think first and foremost, there's a funding question that we've been discussing. And second, there's a political mandate question. Uh, There needs to be an under-secretary-level position to own this problem. Until we have that, I don't think we're going to get the kind of interagency, whole whole-of-government response that we're looking for.
0: Yeah, I, uh, again, as I said earlier, I'm reassured by what uh, Ms. Gabriel has done with that organization and particularly encouraged by the new budget request and her ambitious plans, Uh, but... Uh, I think it's somewhat personality driven, although she's been effective at at uh, getting things done at a higher level. Uh, so I don't disagree with you that uh, having someone that has the ability to work um, at the interagency level uh, because they have responsibility and authority would, would be helpful. So kicking it, kicking it up to a higher level. I will say in the case of this Secretary of State, he testified in this room where you all are sitting about this very topic and was was very supportive. And I think that's been one of the reasons, again, that's been successful. But that may not be the case in the future. Uh, just quickly, I think it's fascinating what you're saying about the different approaches. Now, we need to be cognizant of that. Um, one story I've heard recently that may be disinformation, but I don't think so, um, is with regard to China's activities in Africa. We talked about this earlier. And I think this is one reason I'm encouraged that, again, GC wants to get more involved in Africa. But it was on your question about media, and it was actually um, – buying or acquiring media companies and then providing the people of, of these uh, poor countries a uh, a network and, you know, nightly news and morning news and noon news that they didn't otherwise have, but it was all based on uh, China's interest in propagating their own narrative. And uh, so on the one hand, great that these communities now, thanks to the uh, Chinese government, have better infrastructure, or uh, in this case, media infrastructure, but not if it's going to be disinformation, Is as opposed to what you're telling about Russia, which is not that long view necessarily. It's more taking the coronavirus, immediately creating a distrust and, and disinformation around that. Is that true, Mr. Blumenthal?
5: It is true, and it's even it's even worse than that in the sense that so sh- so companies that are well-funded like uh, Xinhua or the Global Times or other Chinese companies that that we know here have training programs for African journalists and have and sometimes are the only uh, source of of information, even though it's disinformation in in these countries, they uh, are going out. And um, I'd say it's, it's, it's the entire spectrum from being able to propagate the Chinese line to report the way the Chinese want. CCTV is another one of those companies that is becoming even more prevalent in, in the rest of the world. They're, they're purchasing they're purchasing other companies or they're providing um, or they're just maintaining presences or opening up presences in some of the countries you're talking about training so supposedly training journalists um, and also teaching other dictators how to censor content. It's another big one. So this, it, is, this is a huge uh,
0: challenge and the GEC is not equipped to handle that. So let's take an, an individual African country that has this opportunity to have a network set up and, and it's more partnering with, I would assume, those countries and regional organizations uh, of countries to be able to understand what the threat is and to provide assistance so they don't have to rely on that. Is that, is that the answer there and is that more of a State Department function?
5: Partly, we also have great NGOs who have been really very ahead of the curve, uh, Human Rights Watch and Freedom House. I mean, they were the ones who came out with the first reports and analysis on this Chinese sharp power in these countries that identified exactly what I'm identifying, which is they are training generations of Africans and others to tow the Chinese Communist Party line or or I should say, and or to uh, support dictatorships in their own countries. Um, so, so you know, the National Endowment for Democracy has a role. Uh, Freedom House has a role. The State Department has a role. Um, <clears throat> some of the intelligence agencies have a role. If we can get, if the American people could get a real sort of network map of which Chinese party organization is funding which, media organization uh, or which training program for journalists, you know, that, that first level of transparency I think would help us a lot to see the scope.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that's that's part of the, the broader issue that we're dealing with with, with China, um, including here uh, with regard to Confucius Institutes and, and the talent recruitment programs that we've heard a lot about recently with uh, Dr. Lieber uh, and so on. On the NGO issue, um, I I know that both of you are very involved with the NGO community and civil society more broadly and the so-called fact checkers, uh, which I agree with you, if we can uh, continue to support those kinds of organizations, uh, some of whom may not be precisely um, aligned with the GEC on the way to approach this, the best practices we talked about earlier, but on the other hand they're out there uh, doing incredible work that we can't afford to do as a country and And often they're state actors themselves, so a small country in the Baltics, as you talked about earlier, can can play a big role here. Can you talk a little about that and how we can leverage more of that activity, both in the NGO community and among these smaller democracies, to get them to be more effective?
6: Yeah, thank you for that question. I think one of the elements of the GC that we haven't discussed is that is their funding capabilities to local organizations. And I think that's been critical in jump-starting uh, quite a bit of work, especially in Central Eastern Europe, the Baltic states, the Balkans and elsewhere, to give these small groups that don't have uh, funding otherwise to be able to carry out this important work. And I think this signals the Kind of advantage that we have as a democracy is that you look at Russia, you look at China. Their approach is top down. At the end of the day, to any problem, our approach will never be that way. So we have to rely on a bottom up structure where we empower local organizations um, in an organic but decentralized way uh, to who know their local context better than we do uh, to give them the running room, the independence to be able to do their work. And I think the GEC's ability to fund those organizations should be maintained and should be increased in the next budgetary request, because it's been so critical um, in creating this kind of organic uh, response um, to disinformation efforts, especially in Central Eastern Europe. I will say one thing is that I mentioned earlier that these countries have been the target of these attacks, especially Ukraine and the Baltic states, uh, have also built better resilience against them. And I would also point to the Nordic states. You know, RT, Swedish, uh, tried and failed in Sweden for a reason. Nobody took it seriously because there was a generally very high level of public awareness that this was a Russian-funded uh, media outlet, and nobody paid attention to it. That kind of resilience is something that we can learn from. It's something that I think Western European countries can learn from. So I wouldn't just look at Central Eastern Europe as a place we need to support and fund. We also should be looking at it as a place where we can take some lessons home.
0: Great points. We probably didn't talk about that enough earlier in terms of what GEC is doing, um, screening, but then providing help to some of these um, NGOs, uh, other members of civil society, particularly to build, build that resilience in some of these smaller democracies. Senator Booker.
1: So they've just called votes, Mr. Chairman, and, and that means at some point we're going to have to leave here. So maybe I just want to ask this general, if you had a chance, you've got uh, uh, two senators here. Uh, are you guys concerned, worried? or alarmed at the American uh, uh, response as it stands now to what China, Russia, uh, other foreign nationals. You you said, um, uh, Dr. Polykova. you said that the Russians' playbook is not just worrisome because they're getting better at their playbook, but also because their playbook is being copied by other countries. And so you can see more and more of these things spreading. So I just really want you to know, like, do you have a moment on the record to say you guys are concerned, given all that we're doing, or... uh uh uh, worried or just like sound the alarm this the modern day paul revere the chinese are coming the russians are coming wake up uh because you're not doing enough where are you guys
6: um if we're talking about worry concern alarm scale yes um i would say that i'm between concerned and alarmed okay um i don't think we should panic uh we are the united states we have the greatest economy um, in the world. We have the greatest uh, alliance structure in the world. Uh, we are so capable of responding to this threat. The reason I'm concerned is not because I'm concerned about our inability to respond. I think we're very capable um, as a country, as a government, to respond. Um, if, But I'm concerned that it's been such a polarizing, such a partisan issue um, that we haven't been able to get the kind of momentum we would actually need uh, to be able to respond in the way that we should. So I would say my concern is less about Russia, you know, destroying our democracy, and I want to. I do not want us to go to that panic alarm mode. My concern is more that we need to get our act together at home to be able to respond effectively. Okay,
5: Uh, Senator. Depends on the day. I mean, sometimes (laughs) concerned, sometimes alarmed. You know, when I wake up uh, in the morning and read that we're capping uh, Chinese state media from being in the United States or using the Foreign Agents or the Foreign Missions Act to kick them out of the United States. um, I'm less alarmed. I'm, you know, when I see that the FBI is actually and the Justice Department's China Initiative is actually going after both uh, influencers, let's say political influencers, as well as espionage. I'm, I'm I'm happy we're slowly waking up. But it is, I mean, the scope that I described is alarming, also. And and the the idea that, that China is engaged in a comprehensive it's not the Chi, it's not China as a whole. It's the Chinese Communist Party is engaged in this comprehensive effort to undermine our position in the world and undermine democracy and train others to to be dictatorships and authoritarian and toe their line. And in the 19th Party Congress report to say they want a whole different world order based on Chinese value CCP values, it, it is alarming. And we're, we're, we're getting started. But again, you look at um, just American, even elite public awareness of the, of 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 the concerted effort to undermine content, to undermine free speech, to undermine basic values, um, you
1: know, we're just not there yet. But, it, but it's fascinating people. to me. I'm I'm sorry. I, I know my history yeah. of the Cold War. Yeah, where we took it very very seriously. We were a whole, it seemed like a whole nation state bipartisan commitment to stopping the spread. Uh, of the Soviet Union's influence. And now it's a different day. But I, you know, this is a great story I, I, uh, to the, for the chairman, uh, Jeff Flake, uh, who I chaired a subcommittee with, the Africa subcommittee, we're flying over to because Mugabe has just been over there. Coons was on that trip. Um, bipartisan group, ready to put sanctions, have free and fair elections to Emerson and Magagwa. We land in Zimbabwe, uh, honor democratic principles and ideals. He's coming in from China. And their message to him was, we don't care what you do. And so I, I, I'm alarmed, to be, to be frank, that, that the Chinese are looking at this as a 25, 50 year uh, process. We're seeing this in election cycles. We're still not even having consensus on the, the, on the breadth and the depth of the problem. We're still dealing with this in, in, with stove piping. Uh, um, but yet this, the planet Earth right now is in this battle between authoritarian governments and free democracies and frankly what's our scorecard in the last 10 years i mean i can go through hungary i can go through i can start naming countries that are shifting more towards authoritarianism elections are being challenged we've seen interference everything from brexit elections to eu uh, elections to here at home madagascar uh, new york times reporting so i don't know if our sophistications and capabilities are matching what the threat is and as I see firsthand now as having the incredible privilege to sit on this committee, I, 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 from what i witness with my own eyes I, and when I visit Africa or other places, I'm, I'm really concerned about our ability to keep up right now. And, and it seems to me, uh, with, even though the great patriots uh, in, our, in, in the administration and great committed folks, that we're not taking this threat as seriously as we should. And, and with that, Mr. Chair, unless you all would want to comment on anything I said for a final word in my one-minute and 40 seconds left.
5: I, I, agree with, I agree with all that. And in fact, I'd even go, I'd say it's even worse because the Chinese have been doing this since the end of the Cold War and since the Tiananmen Square massacre and since they identified us as the main threat to the regime. This has been going on for an extremely long time. The one positive note I'd say is that the Taiwanese fought back successfully on a massive disinformation campaign, working with Twitter and Google and Facebook, and we helped them uh, the U.S. government helped them, and the Hong Kongers are still out on the streets protesting. The closer they are to China, the more they dislike the CCP and they see the problem. But in general, I agree with you. Thank you very much.
6: Just just very briefly, I agree with you as well. I think we think the combination of Russian-Chinese activities across the world, that is a cause for alarm in the long term of U.S. leadership um, in the world and the long term health of democracies in the world. And I think that is also speaks to the point of why every country matters and why we have to be there before they are. And that's where we're starting to lose ground is that we're not, um, identifying vulnerable areas and forming a strategy as to how to reach vulnerable populations those vulnerable countries. And it's not just about Ukraine. It's about a variety of countries across the world. But it's also why I think countries like Ukraine really matter a lot, just like countries like Taiwan matter so much and, and deserve continued U.S. Uh, support um, on a strategic level.
1: And before I let you close this out, I just want to think it's very really important for the congressional record, for the senatorial record to, to hold it for all history to come. Uh, that when Dr. Polyakova came here, she came serious because she brought her mother here to back her up. You saw this was so important. You have generational strength here. And can you just say her name to the record? I think it's really nice that she's sure. here.
6: This is my, my mom, Irina Polyakova, and uh, uh, she brought me here from the Soviet Union. I'm always grateful for that.
1: Thank you. Thank you very much. It's wonderful to see you. What a great immigrant American story. Uh, thank you very much. Thank you.
0: Thanks to both of you for some very... Uh, helpful, insightful testimony and I'm going to leave on a more positive note, which is I look around the world and I I see all of these uh, sort of non-kinetic activities and the disinformation campaigns and and they're troubling to be sure. But to uh, Dr. Poyakova's point about democracies, you know, we have an ultimate weapon here which is the strength of people and voices being heard and bottom up rather than top-down And I look at what's happened in Ukraine uh, just in the last five years. I look at what's happened in places like Bolivia more recently. I look at what happened in North Macedonia despite massive efforts. Um, There are some success stories, and we should learn from those. Not that we're done in any of those countries, by the way. Uh, We have lots of work to do, but uh, we have to figure out how to better organize ourselves. That's why we started the GEC. Uh, It's not going to solve all the problems. As you said earlier, there's no one solution, uh, Dr. Polkova. But your testimony today has been very helpful for us to get a a better appeal for that. The one issue we did not address that I think we should have gotten a little deeper in, which we'll do more uh, in response to questions I hope that we will have, is with regard to the social media platforms. And you mentioned how Google and Facebook uh, and Twitter and others have been helpful with regard to Taiwan, but they also have played a role that's not as helpful. And we get to talk about that issue more honestly, I think, and figure out how to work together to push back and to ensure that you know the right information is out there for people to make decisions on their own and to promote more freedom and democracy thank you all for being here today